0: word good morning church Uh, please turn with me in your copy of God's word as we continue where we left off last week in Acts chapter 15 It had been my ambition to uh, go to chapter 16, verse 5, uh, but we're only going to read uh, from verse 36 to verse 41. That's just going to be our attention this morning. Acts 15, verse 36 uh, to verse 41. Hear the reading of God's word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work and there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's Word. One of the one of the best features of biblical literature is that it is honest and, at many points, relatable. This episode of disagreement and parting in Paul and Barnabas's ministry shows quite clearly what Paul and Barnabas themselves had said in chapter 14. Do you remember what happened in chapter 14 when they arrived at Lystra and the people at Lystra tried to worship them? They said, don't worship us because we are but men. And certainly this disagreement is showing us that they they are indeed but men. The disagreement they have is serious. It is the focus of this passage. And the disagreement is serious, but in one sense it is also a bit trivial. The disagreement they have is about Mark but it is also about priorities in Christian ministry. Think with me, in Christian ministry, as we think about the mission of the gospel going forward, should we prioritize rehabilitating one person who has failed in ministry, or should we ensure that we only pick those who have proved themselves to be the finest people in the work? Perhaps the most surprising thing about this disagreement is that it led to a parting. It led to a separating. When you consider what Paul and Barnabas had been through in their many years together, it is surprising that this issue would be the issue that breaks the camel's back. You remember that Barnabas is the one who brought Paul to the church in Jerusalem and advocated for him when everyone else was afraid of him and doubting his salvation. We saw that in chapter 9. That event was about 10 and 14 years prior to what's happening here. What the, when the, you remember also when the Lord did the, the wonderful work in Antioch, it was Barnabas who went and found Paul in Arabia and brought him back to Antioch where they served together for a number of years as a two-man team. You'll remember that when the church was fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit asked for Paul and Barnabas by name to be set apart for a particular ministry and he said they should go together it was implied in the way the holy spirit spoke there and they were sent out together they were the leads the leaders of this mission of the of, of the church at antioch to the gentiles and think about the things that we've seen over the past few weeks as they've journeyed together in ministry they've endured jealousy from the jews they've endured the hatred of the pagans they've even been stoned uh, at least Paul was. Uh, they've preached and they've planted churches wherever they went. Uh, they've dealt with the opposition, and they've been partners together for at least a decade. They've worked together for at least a decade at this point. And It is amazing when you think about what is it that causes these two partners in the great mission of the gospel, these two partners whom the Lord loved and the Lord had empowered, that the Lord had used so powerfully, as they've traveled, that this is the issue that causes them to go their separate ways. So what is this issue that causes these two men to separate? What is this issue that causes them to not walk together? Well, to trace the issue, we have to go back to the beginning of the missionary journey in Acts 13. And you'll remember when we were in Acts 13, I told you, keep these items in mind because they'll come back, and here we are. You remember in Acts 13 verse 5 that when they were sent out together, they took together, they took with them John Mark, who was to be, as we see in verse 5 of chapter 13, who was to be their assistant. He was to be an assistant in the ministry. So he was not to be the leader like the two of them are. He was not to be a preacher uh, or even just a, even, even, even a teacher, even a disciple. But his, his role was that of assisting these two men uh, administratively in the work of the gospel. Now, his role as an assistant was not an insignificant one. He was to participate in the work, and he was to assist them. But there is also a school of thought that believes that he was actually being groomed for a fuller work himself, for a fuller part in the work himself. Because the term that that Luke uses here to describe him as an assistant is a term that is usually used to describe an intern. So you remember back in the day, you, you... you would, you would, you would, be, you would uh, intern, you would assist, assist the, the, the guy who's making shoes or assist the barber. You'd assist them and then you'd take over the work. You'd go and do the work yourself as well. And this is the term that was used for that. So it was an assistant, but perhaps it was also an assistant with the view of being one, because he was very young, who was going to carry on the work after Barnabas and Paul had finished their journey. In any event, we saw that he was with them in Cyprus. And you remember what happened when we saw in Cyprus, they were opposed very strongly by Elimas, And while they were preaching throughout the island, he was with them, assisting them throughout the island of Cyprus. But when they left Cyprus and passed through Pamphylia, John left them. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Now Paul and his companion put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. He departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. Luke does not tell us here in chapter 13 uh, the, the, the details around the fact that he left them. But in the way that he says it, and of course in the situation that we're in, the verses that we're in now in chapter 15, we know that this leaving of them was not a good Uh, leaving, that he was sent back to Jerusalem, but rather he deserted them. He deserted them in the ministry. He left them. They were busy uh, uh, working, preaching the gospel, strengthening disciples, and John deserted them. He left the work, dropped the tools. He said, I'm done, and he went back to Jerusalem. Now, Here's what we know. Here are some facts that we know about John's leaving, uh, John Mark's leaving of the work. Number one, he didn't leave the faith. So he didn't. He didn't say, "I'm no longer a Christian. I'm now going back to Judaism." No, he simply left the work. That's very important. He did not renounce the Lord Jesus. He did not change his theological convictions. He just left the work. The thing that he deserted was. The work some there was something in the work that was too much for him and he deserted it and notice also that he went back to jerusalem but remember where were they sent out from where were, where were where was john and paul and, and barnabas sent out from antioch but where does he go jerusalem and what do we know about the jerusalem church we've known that the jerusalem church is a static church remember so that they're the ones who are not pushing forward the mission so he's going back to the church that's static. But it's not just the fact that he's going back to the church that's static. He's actually going back to his mother. We met his mother, Mary, in, in chapter 12. Um, his mother, Mary, is the one who owns the big house, who had slaves. Um, when You remember when they were praying together in chapter 12, praying for Peter's release? And then Peter came, and then the, the slave girl went to the door and said, uh, I've, I've seen a ghost. Uh, that, that, that house, that big house that had slaves, that house was John, John Mark's mother's house. So we know that he was going back to his mother, and his mother, of course, has a, a big house, and the mother his mother has slaves. So it's possible that he's going back to comfort. He's leaving this, this harsh life of being out here in the ministry, uh, traveling from place to place, living who knows where. Is going back to the comforts that he's experienced with his mother in Jerusalem. And his desertion here was related to the mission. Perhaps he found it too hard. Perhaps he felt inadequate. Maybe he realized that he struggles with Gentiles being saved, and that's why he went back to Jerusalem. He's struggling with this. With this issue of Gentiles being saved and having to eat with them as we know that Paul and Barnabas were, they were not making any distinctions, hence the the issue we saw having to be dealt with last week at the Jerusalem Council. We do not know the specifics of what is it in his heart that made him desert, but we know that it was related to the mission and it was not a good thing, uh, at least in the way that uh, Paul is looking at it. But there's something else here that we, possibly, that we possibly know about John Mark. Now, again, I'm going to say here possibly. Many biblical scholars believe that this is not the first time John Mark had deserted. The first time, actually, is recorded in Mark chapter 14 and verse 51 in one of the most weird and almost out-of-place passages in the New Testament. Turn with me there for a second. Mark chapter 14 and verse 51. Mark 14 and verse 51. This is when the Lord is being deserted by the Lord after Gethsemane. He's being deserted by all of his disciples. And he's alone. He's being taken uh, by, the, by, the, by the, the Roman soldiers. And here's what we, we get. We get this almost weird little sentence here in verse 51 and verse 52 and a certain young man was following him clothed only in a linen cloth on his naked body and they attempted to seize him but he left behind the linen cloth and fled naked and then we never hear about this young man again now you want, what who's this young naked man who's uh, who's left the lord well, many scholars believe that Mark here, because Mark wrote the, Mark wrote the Gospel of, of Mark, John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, and many scholars believe that Mark here is referring to himself. There's many reasons for that. I'm not going to get into all of them, but I actually, I'm convinced about that because we see that a lot in, um, in, the, in the biography, in the Gospels, especially John does it, where he refers to himself in an underhanded way, and it seems certain, it seems to make sense as well here, particularly because we know that John Mark's, John Mark's mother's house was in Jerusalem. It's possible that he's, he's inserting himself here, saying, hey, I was also there. I also saw what happened to the Lord Jesus. But look at the first time that we're meeting him in the, in the story of the entire New Testament. The first time we're meeting John Mark, he's deserting the Lord Jesus in the toughest time of his life. He's also deserting him. Because of a little hardship, he's deserting him, and he's deserting him naked. Okay, That's a shameful deserting so, now, coming to our text this morning, what is happening is that Paul and Barnabas want to go back to the churches that they planted. They want to go back to encourage the churches that they planted. Paul is saying, let's go and see how the churches are doing. Let's go encourage them. Let's go, let's go uh, and, uh, see the brothers, work with the brothers again. Let's not, let's not forget about them. And the desire to go back to the churches that they planted is born out of love and seriousness. They wanted to make sure that the people were thriving, that the congregations were growing in maturity, and they wanted to go teach them. As Paul says elsewhere, they want to go and impart on them some words from the Lord for their edification. This was not a small thing. This was not just a hey, hi, visit. This was part of missionary endeavor to go back to where the work was planted and to go and encourage and impart, as Paul says, some spiritual gift. And so for this serious endeavor of going back to the church, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, but Paul does not. And the reason that Paul gives is that John Mark is a deserter. He deserted them. But we don't know how John Mark inserted himself into the conversation. We don't know if he came to the brothers and apologized for deserting him. Luke does not see it necessary to tell us, how John Mark was involved in this conversation, but we just know that the brothers had a sharp disagreement about whether or not to take him on account of his desertion. Now, before you make any judgments on who was right, who was wrong, is it right to take this deserter or not, I want us to take some time to consider, to consider each man's perspective, to consider Paul's perspective, to consider Barnabas' perspective and see what we can learn from each. First, Paul's perspective. For Paul, the fact that John Mark deserted them was indicative of someone who cannot be trusted with the work of God. There's a proverb that says that if you trust a treacherous man, a man who's untrustworthy, uh, you are, you are going to suffer the ruin of fools. Proverbs 12, 25. One could call Paul's view the the military view. Many times, of course, we know Paul views the the worker of the Lord as a soldier who must not, according to what he says to Timothy, who must not involve himself in civilian affairs. For Paul's mind, the man who's going to put his hand to the plow, who's going to work in the ministry, who's going to work with eternal souls, that person must have a serious view about what he is doing. And you know how, his, how in history uh, militaries view deserters; they were not treated very well. They were hanged, killed, skinned. If you were called to fight for your tribe, if you were called to go to go fight, to go uh, defend your nation or your tribe, and then you ran away from your post, you ran away from the job, it would be in the interest of the kings to kill you, so that others are not afraid, so that others are afraid to do the same thing. Paul, being a Roman citizen, would be well aware of this. One writer speaks of desertion in the Roman Empire in this way. Surrounded by enemies, the existence of Rome itself depended on its army. Desertion from the Roman army could also have catastrophic consequences on the morale of other soldiers. And if the army suffered, then Rome's power and dominion would suffer as well. Consequently, as the social, political, and economic success of Rome depended largely on its military successes, a military career was a badge of honor for any Roman citizen. Desertion was considered a serious offense and punished in the most severe way, which is death, under Roman law. This kind of thinking is seen throughout Paul's description of the work of of the ministry. Paul advocates for total devotion and that a man must be completely committed. He often calls out, actually, in his letters, he often calls out those who leave him in the work. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he calls out Demas. He says, Demas deserted me because he loved this world. He says he, he loves this world. In verse 16 of the same chapter, he also complains how many have left him alone at his trial. I'm here standing for the gospel and I'm appalled at how everybody has deserted me. Look, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my aid, but they all deserted me, may it not be counted against them. Paul takes seriously this, con- this concept of, Just because it's hard doesn't mean you can leave. Stay the course. And to even think, to get into Paul's mind even more, in the same way, the people that Paul praises the most are the ones who endure. How often when you read about Paul calling out people's names specifically, he calls out and praises those who work hard and endure in the midst of the hardship. You see this, if you just read Romans 16, it's, it's, it's all over the people that Paul uh, names by names. In, in Romans 16 verse 6, he says of Mary, greet our sister Mary who has worked hard for you. He says also there in that, cha- in that chapter, greet those workers in the Lord, Trifina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. In Colossians 4.13, he says this about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. This is Paul's view of ministry. Paul's view is that you put your hand and then you work hard. Paul's, if, if we were to listen to Paul tell us about how we are to think about the church, this is what he would say to us. When you are dealing with God's people, you ought to think that you are building God's empire. Do not leave your post. When we are, walk, when we are working with the people of God, when we are working with these eternal souls, this is not something to touch and leave. This is something that you are to do with everything that you have. Paul in his writings has little room for slackness, for desertion, for not working hard. Paul especially, if you've read Paul, you know that he does not encourage believers to prioritize themselves. You know this. He says always prioritize others, particularly those in the church. Prioritize the benefit of others. Prioritize the others' well-being. Consider their interests better than your own. He says in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, when he thinks about himself, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will gladly be poured out for the sake of your souls. So what can we learn from Paul, from his perspective? The Lord Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 9, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Dear saints, we must learn to work hard. We must learn to work hard for the sake of the saints. When you have a task involving the people of God, particularly involving their spiritual advancement, learn to work hard. Do not allow your hand to be slack. We must view that what we're doing with the people of God is we are building God's kingdom. God has done so much for us. We want to ensure that we return thanks to him by by spending ourselves for the benefit of those who are called by the name of the Lord Jesus. That's That's Paul's TED talk regarding ministry. And we're all involved in it. We all involve ourselves in other people's lives. When we, when we call one another out in our sins, when we are given somebody to disciple, when we, when, when we see somebody who has a weakness and we want to take time to help them through that, we all are involved in some level in ministry. And what Paul would say to us is, work hard because you are building the kingdom of God. Do not allow slackness. Why? Why? What's the end goal? What's the goal here? Because he says this in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, we do not look, lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Are eternal. Uh, Sam and I were discussing uh, a few weeks ago about how our biggest issue is that we are, so, we, we are so controlled by what we see. And whenever we turn our lenses to the scripture, the scripture says the thing that should control how you act how you think, the thing that should motivate you is everything that you do not see. And what is it that you do not see? You do not see the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says that in, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1. You did not see it. You have not seen Jesus Christ himself, but yet to you he is precious. You did not see him go up. You did, not see, you, did not see, you, have, you did not see his power displayed before you. And yet, you have staked your life on that. In the same way, you do not see him reigning over the cosmos right now. You do not see him controlling the world. What you see is politicians, it seems like they're controlling the world. You're not seeing him. But he is. He's in control of everything. He is ruling everything. And you have not seen him return yet. You are waiting for his return. You have not seen the rewards that He has at His right hand for those who would serve Him, for those who would take Him at His word. You have not seen them. But He has them. He is coming. He says, I am coming and my reward is with me. And I will give to every man according to what he has done. Saints, when it comes to serving the people of God, dealing with the souls of those who have been ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are doing a huge work, an immeasurable work. And we need to think, however hard it is, Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians 4, he's talking about all of his hardships as a minister of the gospel. However hard it is, remember this, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remember the goal. We are serving a kingdom that is beyond what we can see. Do not allow slackness. Do not allow an inconsistency in your self-sacrifice. Do not allow it, but allow. But but think on the gospel and let that drive you to serve and serve with excellence to give yourself in order so that God's people might grow and know the Lord and that the Lord might. Be pleased in his people. There is a way to live that makes earth and its comforts ultimate. There is a way to live. I can say it this way. There is a, lay, there is a way to live that normalizes desertion. You touch and then leave. Touch and then leave. Do a little bit and then, okay, now the, 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 I'm just not going to now. And then touch. There is a way to live, saints. And I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate things for us to step back. Of course there are. But you know what I'm talking about when you are slacking in, the benef- in benefiting the people of God. Do not do that. There is a slacking. I would encourage us all to consider how can we be spent for the sake of the saints. How can we all spend energy that includes all of us, including you students. Okay. Students. I have some stuff to say to you. Some of you students really need to think. It's wonderful that you're spending time together, hanging out, doing all kinds of fun things. But let me encourage you. Think about how you can spend time serving the older members in the church. Think about that. Instead of just saying, hey, let me get people together and let's go do something fun for us. Just sit down and think, wait a second, how can I serve other members in the church? How can I serve them? Is there a member in the church who has an exhausting situation at home? If you come to me, I'll tell you 10. Okay. Is there a member who, is being, who has a particular exhausting situation at home that I can come and put my hands in and help? This goes for all of us, not just the students. Is, is there a way that we can think about how to benefit the people of God? Gentlemen in the church, the single mothers in the congregation, Let's think, how can we serve them? How can we serve the single mothers in the congregation? How can we ensure that the young women and and men that they are raising up are not raised short of male role models? Gentlemen, are you with me? How can we serve the single mothers in the church? Is there a way that we can plug in and spend ourselves to that? Spent, be spent. Resources, energy, time. Time thinking, stretching for the sake of the benefit of the people of God. I could keep going on with examples here. Now I'd encourage us all to, re- to, to think, how can we put our hands to the plow and hold and not let go? May God help us in that endeavor. That's Paul's view. Paul's view, and we have a lot of data because, of course, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. So we have a lot of data to understand to get into his thinking. thinking. But let's think about Barnabas' point of view. What's Barnabas' point of view here? Barnabas, we know already from the book of Acts that he is a very different personality to Paul in some respects. Where Paul can be called severe and almost commander-like, Barnabas is the encourager. He's the encourager. So Barnabas, you remember when we first met him in chapter 4, his name was not Barnabas, his name was Joseph. That's his actual name. But the church at Jerusalem called him Barnabas. Why? Because he was such an encourager. They called him son of encouragement. He was such an encourager. People were uplifted and encouraged and strengthened when they were around Barnabas. He was known in the church as the one who lifts up the weak and strengthens them. He was known as the one who prioritizes the people. He was known. And we see this in no better place than in Paul's life himself. It is not an understatement to say that in human terms, Paul would have no ministry to speak of if it was not for Barnabas. It's not, it's not, it's not an understa- it's not, a, it's not an overstatement, rather, to say that. Barnabas put his neck out for Paul when he was recently converted. Do you remember? When nobody wanted to touch him, everybody was doubting him, and Barnabas went. Spent time with him, and then took him to Jerusalem and stuck out his neck for him. This murderer, this murderer of the church, Barnabas took him and said, "No, I've seen the grace of of the Lord in his life. Let's 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 back this guy. This guy has truly been called by the Lord." And even after Paul was accepted in the church, you remember that the church quickly sent him away. Please leave. Leave us. Go, go elsewhere because your your presence here is going to be problems for many reasons. And when there was a a, a solid work happening in Antioch, Barnabas is the one who thought Paul has been called for Gentiles, let me go get him and bring him here because this is where the Lord is working Barnabas was a man who never counted anybody out and so Barnabas stands up to Paul sharply so, this was a sharp disagreement he stands up to Paul sharply so and says yes he deserted us John Mark did, but there is still hope for him There is raw material to work with here. This one, the Lord Jesus Christ died for. This one can still be, not just that he's a believer, but he can still be useful in the mission of building up others in the church. Paul disagrees. Barnabas says, no, there is an opportunity here. This man can be rehabilitated. Where is Barnabas coming from? What is Barnabas' perspective? Come with me for a second. I want to show you what I believe Barnabas' perspective where Barnabas' perspective could be could be crystallized Luke chapter 22 verse 31 come with me there Luke 22 and verse 31 Peter is beating his chest saying that wherever the Lord Jesus will go he will go with him whatever happens he will be he will be there And look at what the Lord Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Before the Lord is arrested Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned from the failure that is coming, strengthen your brothers. See, Peter, the Lord, un- understood that this man is going to desert me. I'm going to pray for him. And, when he, when I, when, and my prayer is such that when, he is, when his desertion is done, he comes back and he becomes useful again by strengthening the saints. Our theology, friends, must always have this, that even the one who fails the most among us has been paid for by the Lord and can still be useful. Our theology must have that. As much as we want to have Paul's perspective in saying we must work hard and ensure that we put to the plow, put our hands to the plow and not let go, we must also have this perspective that the one who fails, if they are in Christ, who prayed for them? Who is it that intercedes for the one who fails? It is Christ. The high priest, the greatest high priest, the high priest of high priests, the excellent one, that one prays for the one who fails. And because that one prays for the one who fails, there is some material to work with. Barnabas is convinced that there there is something that can be done here with this man. And notice what the Lord says to Peter. He says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. He doesn't say, when you have turned, please don't infect others with your deserting mentality. When you have turned, please just stay there in the corner. No, he says, when you have turned, lead. When you have turned from your desertion, speak and encourage, build up my lambs. You remember, of course, what he says to him when after, the re- in the re- after the resurrection. John tells us in John 21 how what happens there is that he says to him, Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Tend to what is mine. There is still, whoever began horribly, there is still an opportunity. Even for the deserters, there is is hope, there is grace, even for the deserters. Jude 22 says this, Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. We're not just to be those who are severe, only wanting this perfect standard. We must also be those who have grace and have mercy on those who doubt. Many people come to this passage and they want to, uh, want to argue who was right. Who, who's the right one? Was it Paul was right or was it Barnabas? I think that's irrelevant. What we have here is two perspectives that are both needed. That's why the Lord sent them together to work together. They needed each other. These two perspectives were necessary, but these men allowed their two perspectives to not be reconciled, and they sinned because nobody yielded to the other. Not one yielded to another one. They were both very hot about this issue instead of appreciating each other's perspectives. I'm convinced that neither you can't argue fully that either one of them was right. Both, you can see both arguments very clearly. There is mercy for this one, but there's also a need to ensure that those who are serving are steely and trustworthy. Well, so what happens? These two personalities, Paul and Barnabas, clash. And they come to a point where they are no longer able to appreciate each other's perspective. I wanna add some extra information on the side that I think would be incomplete if I did not share it with you. It's not just, I think, a, a, per, a, a clash of these two perspectives. There must have, there's a, there's a school of thought and I, and I think it's right that there's, there is a lot going on underneath the surface with, between these two men. In Galatians chapter two, you remember when we read that last week, with re- with, in relation to the uh, Jerusalem Council. This is what we saw. Uh, Galatians chapter two verse eleven: When Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he was condemned. For certain people came from James. He before 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 certain people came from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he was afraid of those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined in this hypocrisy with him so that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. We looked at this passage last week, but I didn't mention this to you and bring to your attention that Paul does not paint Barnabas in the best picture here because he's saying because of the of the hypocrisy of everyone, Barnabas was easily swayed. And Paul was the one who stood for the truth that even Barnabas knew. But he's the only one who stood for it. Barnabas was weak in the face of these men's, of these men's actions. So it is possible that at this point, something has happened in the relationship where Paul doesn't trust Barnabas as much. He is there's, you, you, you're, 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 you're being thrown this way and that way. You're no longer thinking clearly. It's possible. And there's also another piece of information that John Mark, this person that they're arguing about, is Barnabas's cousin. Okay? Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10. That this is Barnabas' cousin. And very likely, because Mary was a widow, very likely that John Mark was raised by Barnabas. In one sense, as the, as the uncle, as the, as the older man at home. And so it's possible that Paul, one of the reasons that Paul does not yield to Barnabas is because he believes that Barnabas is being clouded by his, his love, his affection for his cousin instead of what is necessary in, in the mission. The result of this clash of perspectives is that they separate. A sharp disagreement took place. Verse 39, can come back to our text. A sharp disagreement took place so that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took along mark and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers. Barnabas takes Mark, sails for Cyprus, Paul takes Silas and they travel through Syria and Cilicia. What can we learn from this tale? What are some final lessons we can learn from this tale? I think we could say this, number one, godly and wise people disagree. Right? Godly, wise people disagree. Whenever you see two godly people who are both effective in the ministry, who are loved by the Lord, or who have walked with the Lord in a long time, and they are arguing about something perhaps that is not clearly moral, clearly evident in the scripture, do not be quick to take sides, to say this one's the right one, this one's wrong. Because the reality is that sometimes godly, wise people disagree. I love this passage because this passage is honest. There's no Holy Spirit in this. It's them clashing in their personalities, just in their being men, having different perspectives. It's a wonderful thing for us to learn. We know just because people are, people are godly does not mean that they'll not see things so strongly differently. So what we can learn from it is that we need to appreciate both perspectives. Let's appreciate different perspectives. Let's not choose one. In fact, one of the problems is that when people are surrounded by those who think like them, right? When you're just always surrounded by those who, who affirm your thinking, and they're always, when you say jump, they say how high. We have a problem. You need different perspectives because both of these men have the Holy Spirit. COVID, of course, was was a massive example of this. We saw many ministries stop working together because they saw different things, saw things very differently. Saints, we must not be surprised when it seems like mature people are disagreeing. They are but men. And here's another encouraging thing that we can learn from this. They both went on to have fruitful ministries and careers. They separated. They never really came back together, at least not as from whatever we have recorded, both in Acts and in the letters. They never really came back together, from what we know, but they both had successful careers. Luke, of course, from here on out in the book of Acts, is going to focus on Paul's ministry, because Luke was with Paul, and Paul is the apostle. But we have every reason from church tradition to know that Barnabas went on to have a successful, fruitful ministry career as a minister of the gospel. So they disagreed, but they went on to be very useful. And this principle, that two godly people who are, who are both full of the Holy Spirit, both useful in the kingdom, the fact that they can disagree and see things so differently also makes us ask for prayer as believers. I think we need to pray for each other and pray that we see things clearly and act in the ben- in in what is beneficial for the church and not just by our myopic vision. Pray for the elders of this church that if there is a disagreement, that there would be wisdom to see things clearly and that direction might go in the the right way. Pray for yourselves, that as as you are working together, seeing things differently, coming from one side and the other one coming from one side, that there could be a discussion where we grow to appreciate and actually take from others the, the views that they have instead of just always fighting for our view in the way that we see things. If your natural disposition is always to agree with one school of thought, we have problems. You need to always be able to see the benefit and the, and the, and the beauty and, or, that comes from a, a, a variety of views from people who have the spirit of the living God. So what about Mark? As we come to a close, what about Mark? At the end of Paul's life, Paul's last recorded letter, he says this, and I would like you to turn there with me, just to see this as we come to a close. This is now right at the end of Paul's life. This John Mark that they were debating and fighting over, and Paul took a very severe view and went in one direction. Look now at the end of Paul's life, what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Look at, what, look, at what, look at what Paul says. Verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Wait a second, who's writing this? Is it Barnabas? No. It's Paul. Mark has been restored in the ensuing years. We have no idea how that happened. As I was studying this, I was like, oh Lord, it would have been wonderful to see the stages of Mark's restoration. But Mark has been restored in a powerful way. And not only has he been restored, but look at what he says. He is very useful to me for ministry. I need Him. When you come, don't leave Him behind. Bring Him. I need Him. He's very useful to me. Something has changed. There has been a remarkable restoration, even just within the relationship between Paul and Mark. The first first gospel, the gospel that chronicles the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, was written by Mark. He wrote the first gospel. In fact... One could argue that the entire idea, remember, the, the, the Lord Jesus never gave any command to his disciples that is recorded for us that they need to write a chronicle of his life. He never gave any command. So one could say this from a human perspective. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit, but, but from a human perspective, one could argue that the entire idea of writing down an organized material to chronicle the life of the Lord was Mark's idea. One could say in many ways that we we owe the fact that we have the other gospels, Luke, Matthew, John, we owe them to Mark because Mark started that. He chronicled the life, he wrote it down, and the others, and the others saw the benefit in that, and the Holy Spirit used that. Imagine this. This is this is the epitaph I imagine could be put on Mark's life at the end of his life. A deserter-turned gospel writer. A lover of comfort turned into a Holy Spirit-inspired writer. What a turnaround. What a change. Friends, here's our application. There is opportunity to repent. If you've deserted, if you've not served in the manner that you should, there is opportunity to repent while it is called today. When we say repent, we say that to those who do not know the Lord. We say, turn. There is an opportunity for you to have life and have it to the fullest in Christ. To know Him. To have your sins forgiven. To walk with Him uprightly. There is opportunity. But when we say repent, we also say it to God's children who have not lived in the manner that the Lord has saved them to live. So if you're a child of God and you have failed, there is opportunity. While it is still called today, work on one thing at a time. Work on what you know needs to be worked on. There is still opportunity that you can finish strong. That you can say with Paul at the end, I've run the race, I've finished it. Yes, I had a lot of wobbles at the beginning. But praise be to God, i finished strong. May the Lord help us. May the Lord encourage us with that. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord in heaven, we do thank you for this passage. Such a real, such a a, a relatable passage and how we are also often uh, riddled with disagreements and clashing perspectives. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us if we have failed in any way, that you would restore us, that you do for us what you did for John Mark, that we might have an end that is pleasing to you help us lord in any area of deficiency that we might have for anyone here who has a glaring area that could make them liable to be called a deserter in some senses help us help them lord to grow in that area and to praise you for it our father we we're so thankful for the gospel of jesus christ we are not saved by the fact that we have lived up to the standard that is required, but that we are saved by the finished work of the Savior on the cross. And for this, we bless you. And even now, as we come to the table, we bless you for this. We praise your name for your kindness and goodness to us in redeeming our failures. Amen. Amen. we now come to the table. And at the table,